Yeah, I did have a rock bottom. I remember that one day, dinner date, we're going out to a movie and then I'd, I'd already had a bowl and a half before he came home from work. We got into the car and we went to the movies and he was, what's up? What have you been doing? And then when we got home, I drank some more and was so intoxicated that he was beyond concerned and took me to the hospital. So I was checked in and went through that really embarrassing process of having to be watched and monitored and hooked up on drips. And my alcohol, blood alcohol level was at 0.04, which I think is like you're nearly dead at that level. And that's just indicative of me having really just really solidly drunk for months and months. The tolerance was up. So horrible and so shaming. Probably had more alcohol in my system than blood. (laughs) Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, We have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 204. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last eight years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. Social norms are so powerful, and that's why you need to find a new tribe for this life-changing journey. Because your family tribe will tell you to just cut down, and your drinking buddy tribe will tell you not to be so boring. Whereas, Tribe Sober will connect you with other people on the same path. Other people who will encourage and support you. Other people who understand the struggle other people who've been just where you are now. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle, and many of our members are already thriving in their sobriety and inspiring others. Each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. At that time, I didn't. I thought, oh, I won't really engage on the on the uh, platform, on the WhatsApp group, or whatever. But through my lecturing at Vips, we'd had to put all our stuff online. And one of the things that I used to say to the students was, "You must speak out on the forum. You must post things on the forum." So I decided there and then, actually, you better kind of walk your own talk here, Claire. So I did actually immerse myself. I actually immersed myself lock, stock, and barrel in the tribe sober world. I extended the challenge straight away in my own head. Once I'd got past about two weeks, I thought, I'm not going to stop at 66 days. 
I'm going to take it to 100. Then I could see that was just before Christmas. And I thought, no, I'm going to go through Christmas. I'm going to take it to, and I kept extending it. That's how I did it. Yeah. And I journaled. Um, I kept the tracker. I listened to a podcast today. I kind of did Tribe Sober Immersion, actually. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. If you heard last week's podcast, you may remember that Isabella Ferguson was one of the guests in our group discussion about workplace drinking. Isabella is a former litigation lawyer turned counsellor and coach. She specialises in stress, burnout and alcohol dependence. I began our discussion by asking her to introduce herself. My name's Isabella Ferguson. At the moment, I'm in Adelaide in Australia. Just moved here, but usually I'm a Sydney cider. I'm a counsellor and coach, so I have my own business, helping men and women de-stress with burnout and in particular alcohol. And I've got my own little podcast as well. (laughs) I think you've got two, haven't you? I do. I've got one that I co-host with uh, another woman, Meg, uh, called Not Drinking Today, and another one that I've recently started called De-Stress for Success, which is really about de-stressing. Yes, that looks interesting. Yeah. Be interesting for the corporates, I would have thought, that one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So let's dive into the drinking story, shall we? Uh, <laughs> what age did you start drinking? Were you like your friend Catherine, a teenage drinker? Yeah, I'm 14 years old. I can remember, yeah, being at my friend's house and we all snuck into the wine cabinet and I can remember the feeling being quite lovely. And so from the get-go, it was very much associated with fitting in, relaxing and a bit of risk-taking and probably developed along that front from that point on. But, yeah, 14, it's young, isn't it? I'm like, and I couldn't imagine my kids starting at that age. I'd be, yeah, I know, but so common, so common. Yeah, yeah. The good yeah, news so, is that the yeah. 14-year-olds of today don't seem to be at it as much as we were. <laughs> Incredibly <laughs> they might be reassuring. other things, but <laughs> they don't seem to be in love with alcohol like you, we were, in my experience anyway. Yeah, the stats in the UK are now saying that 25% of young people between 18 and 25, they don't drink. So it's it's quite interesting, yeah. isn't it? And similar stats here. So amongst our kids and teens, I think when in the 1990s, so when I was really growing up, I think one in 10 considered themselves a non-drinker and now it is one in three. So it's increasingly becoming more viable as a teenager just to say I'm a non-drinker. And, yeah. But with the, those that do drink, we know that their stats are showing that they're drinking at increasingly risky rates. So it's a... Yeah, yeah. That's where the binge drinking and the shots and everything come in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that's right. as you developed a career, Isabella, did you start drinking a lot? to cope with the stresses of it. You were a lawyer, weren't you? Which made, made me smile because we've got so many lawyers in Tribe Sober. I know. <laughs> yes, lot lawyers, the legal profession, drink a lot. Drink a lot to cope, to network, to celebrate. 
all of it. And yes, personally, I think I had really developed the habitual drinking patterns way before I became a lawyer, but they were certainly exacerbated during my time in my career. At university, I was drinking a lot. I remember up at the pool bar, going to see bands. It was my way already of fitting in. And I was quite proud of being that person that could really drink and keep up with everybody else. And I'm a five foot two, small built woman, but I was I was always at the uni bar. I then certainly just carried that on into my legal career for sure. And it became probably my way of networking, connecting, debriefing and fitting in. And I grew up in Canberra, but it, uh, I was a lawyer in Sydney. So I really didn't have my social circle there. So everybody in my law firm, though my, in my close team, became my family, so to speak. And we just drank a lot or I hung out with the people that drank a lot. Yeah. And that pattern was just part of everyday life. And I took it then into my 30s and into my 40s when I had kids. And it was really when I was trying to balance motherhood, parenting, work, and being a busy litigation lawyer, that everything just started to unravel. And you just can't keep up drinking at that rate. For me, alcohol helped me keep all the plates spinning in the air until it just didn't, something had to give. And I left the law in my mid-40s, just strung out, completely burnt out. And that was high anxiety at work. And I had two young kids and two stepdaughters and my husband had a busy life and I wasn't particularly fulfilled in my career. So something just had to give. And I quite happily then eased myself out of that line of work. But then what happened is that I was at home and really then threw myself into all of the drinking that came with all the mummies, the wine groups. Mummy juice. Socialising, the social juice, which I felt like I had missed out on because I was always at work. And But then I just took it to the extremes and (laughs) I was just – we lived in a very close-knit neighbourhood and so we were just lunching – dinner parties, moving house parties, all the trivia nights that came with school. And Mm -hmm. I was just starting to drink a whole lot more than everybody else. It sounds like you're a very social person and you used it a lot for socialising, but did it get to the stage where you started using it for self-medication when you were stressed and tired? I am really social, but what I've come to learn Mm. is that I'm much better one-on-one and small groups suit me. So there's a whole lot of anxiety that kind of comes with socialising in larger groups. Can still happen even now. Alcohol for me tipped into self-medicating and drinking just to feel normal. So home alone without work to validate, keep me busy, distract I just started drinking alone at home from lunchtime. So the wheels started to fall off and my husband started noticing I was just drinking really just to feel normal and Googling all of those things about Mm. how do I taper off? How do I moderate? How do I do all the things? 
You didn't Google how do I quit, huh? <laughs> that was too scary. No, no, no. That would have been sensible. Uh, I didn't know what was going on, really. I hadn't, haven't really thought about it recently, haven't gone into the story so much. But, so it's lovely to do so now, three and a half years later, without drinking. Yeah, it got really dark and dismal and I really felt like I had no hope in pulling myself out. I didn't want to let go of it, but it was seriously impeding on my health and my fitness and my relationships. That's the place it it takes us to, doesn't it? So during your 20s, 30s, were you worried about it or was it so normalised in your group it didn't cross your mind that you were drinking a bit too much? So absolutely normalised. No, I wasn't worried about it. But it was certainly clear now to me and all that I know that I was reliant on it and Mm -hmm. drinking a whole lot more than people that can moderate naturally. Yeah, it wasn't unusual for me just to have a bottle by myself in my 30s at home. Me too. too. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. And when did you start worrying about it? I think in the latter years of my work before I resigned, my husband would have white and I would have red. So we'd each have our bottle and then I'd be opening up my own bottle. And that's when my husband started to say, look, Bells, what are you doing? What's happening? And it was just that external comments that made me kind of think, Mm. oh, but rather than wanting to slow down, I then started to hide what I was doing, hide the glass or Yeah, yeah. yeah, all of those behaviors that you do to keep your habit going. Did you try to cut down or did you take breaks? Did you do dry January, anything like that during your drinking career? No, you didn't didn't bother with that stuff. No, it was just so part of the way we socialised and connected. Mm. The, The main thing that started to really be noticeable was that my husband was slowing down and he's quite a good moderator and now he can continue to be that way. He has a glass maybe every two weeks and that's all that he needs. So I was starting to outpace him and I'm sure. that was becoming, yeah, quite noticeable. Uh, did there yeah, become was, a moment, did you have a rock bottom or did you just gradually come to this Yeah, conclusion? I did have a rock bottom. I remember that one day dinner date. We're going out to a movie and then I'd I'd already had a bowl and a half before he came home from work. We got into the car and we went to the movies and he was, what's up? What have you been doing? And then when we got home, I drank some more and was so intoxicated that he was beyond concerned and took me to the hospital. So I was checked in and went through that really embarrassing process of having to be watched and monitored and hooked up on drips. And my alcohol, blood alcohol level was at 0.04, which I think is like you're nearly dead at that level. And that's just indicative of me having really just yeah. really solidly drunk for months and months. The tolerance was up. The And because was, you're you tiny know. as well. Yeah, as women, yeah, our bodies yeah. are much less equipped to cope with it than oh. men, but you're five foot two and slight. So imagine just those two bottles, three oh. bottles, whatever they must be doing. So horrible and so shaming. And I probably had more alcohol in my system than blood. 
<laughs> but it was, yes, it was so horrible for my husband and everybody around me. But I had one amazing lady who was a doctor who said, I'm not checking you out tomorrow morning. My brother was in exactly the same position as you and he managed to get help and pull through and you owe it to yourself and your family to sort this out. I think she just must have seen something in me that for some reason she thought she'd extend an extra level of care. And I did end up then being checked out onto another ward and going from there to rehab. So straight off to the Byron Bay Treatment Centre and just spent yeah four weeks trying to work out how I got into this position and how I was going to get myself out of it. It was a, a big wake-up call and anxiety-producing. Yeah. I didn't know anybody who had ever been to rehab before. Mm. Yeah, so it was huge. When you left rehab, were you equipped with the coping mechanisms that you needed? Had they no. helped you in there? No. I picked a place which was beautiful, scenic. We got lots of trips to the beach, really good food. And it was fabulous on quite a few fronts in that I was away from my family, away from stress. I had to really think about what it is I'd been doing to everybody else in my family and me. And I got some counselling, but you see, I wasn't used to counselling. I had never done it before. I didn't really know where it was going, how to communicate with the counsellor, how to do any of it. I also what didn't fully engage with it, to be honest. I was really wanting to get out with the idea that I could moderate. Never had I really contemplated that I would have some time away from it or that I would quit altogether. I didn't think I had learnt really about the science of alcohol, about what it does to your brand no. new bodies. I didn't know the why. Why was I here? Yeah, Why I mean, was that I drinking so the way much- that I was drinking? You think if you've yeah. got this captive audience that obviously need to stop drinking in your rehab for three weeks, then use that time to educate them about all those yes. things you've just talked yes. about and what's going to happen afterwards. Yeah. The fact that you yeah. left a rehab expecting to moderate just blows my mind, really. Imagine a heroin well, addict in rehab. Would they come out of rehab thinking, I can moderate now? Look, I'm sure I was trying to pick up on anything that would confirm that confirmation bias. I am sure that many people there just said, you've got to be kidding. The chances of success are minimal. But I think it was, you've got to go down that path yourself and find out. I know that particular treatment centre has since changed in the way that they focus on alcohol and do the whole rehab program. And I think it's improved a lot, but I didn't engage I just wanted to get back and try and build my re- reputation back up. So, so talk to me yeah, about was, the moderation uh, when you came out. Yeah, I came out of rehab and then straight into lockdown. So I came out of rehab, I think it was about the 1st of March, 2020. So then I was suddenly with my husband and my kids solidly in lockdown for months and I think within about a month or two, I started suggesting, oh, look, I can have a glass of wine once a week. And then it quickly ramped up and it got to the point where I just had to really start addressing what it is that I was doing. And I couldn't, for the life of me, put my husband back through any of that again. I started Googling and it was then that I found 
This Naked Mind, Annie Grace's book, and The Alcohol Experiment. And in rehab, actually, I had started retraining to be a counsellor. So I started my new education and was mm. really thought counselling is where I'd like to be. I did This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment just resonated. Yeah. It, it taught me the science. The limiting beliefs, simple, once we understand that they, they trap that's us. Right. <laughs> and we can turn them over and smash them, then uh, we see everything differently. We start to see alcohol for what it really is rather than this wonderful magic potion that we need in our life. I I really just started at that point thinking, I'm not going to miss out. It's actually going to be a change that could drastically improve my life. I just started then on that whole path and I've never looked back. Yes, there have been some hurdles and massive urges and challenges and sober firsts with all the things, but no, never, I've never looked back. Fantastic. And when did you decide that you would train as a coach? Gosh, so I finished my diploma and just really wanted to keep on learning about it. Didn't even know there was such a thing as a sobriety coach. It fell into my inbox, this Naked Minds training program to become a coach. And I thought actually it could be something that could help me find community yeah, and could yeah. keep me just, keep me accountable, keep me on the process of learning about it. And so I signed up and that was one of the best things that I had ever done. And from there, it just all made sense and it snowballed. And I think looking back, Maybe being a lawyer may not have been my passion and my ultimate thing that I was fulfilled with. I probably wasn't as engaged with it. And that may have been part of why I was a bit unfulfilled and I was drinking. It has just been such a fulfilling and passionate career change. And to really step in and help people in that same spot that I was once in when I thought I was never going to dig myself out of the hole is one of the most fulfilling things that... Yeah, I've ever done. I love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I feel the same. Fun. And we're so privileged, aren't we, to be working in this space after we've had that problem. Because every yeah. day we're working with people, talking with people, learning. I'm still learning eight years in. It just reinforces, doesn't it, that we've done the right thing. <laughs> Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at janet at tribesober.com. That's janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. So I was very interested to see that, like your friend Catherine, you're running seminars in the workplace for leaders and employees just so they understand more about alcohol. And I think that's such a brilliant idea because when my corporate career was as an HR director and Ah. I also was very work hard, play hard. And I must say, if someone had come to me in those days and said, I want to talk to the workforce about their alcohol consumption, I would have said, I don't think so. I didn't want to spoil the the fun vibe we had as a company, I think. So I think it must be so different now. And I'm wondering how receptive those HR directors or CEOs are to your pitch, really. 
Oh, God, that's such a good question. I think they are so much more receptive now. I think particularly because uh, a lot of the firms and because I'm an ex-lawyer, that's where I've started doing a lot of my talks, really embrace Dry July, FebFast as a charity funding exercise. And so as part of that, they're bringing in wellness speakers to really just harness the momentum and as a corporation, really support the charity. And I think they're starting to recognise that they're drinking less, there's more productivity, people more engaged. Yeah. And I think they're also recognising that the younger generation are just not drinking like Gen Xs and baby boomers. They don't want a part of workplace meetings in pubs or to feel like they're not included if they're opting yeah. out. Yeah. I think there's a lot of very cluey and switched on HR managers that realise that there needs to be a cultural shift. I'm finding a great reception. I think uh, it's because I am an ex-lawyer and I'm going into law firms and saying, yeah. this is what happened to me. So that lived experience is quite attractive. I haven't yet branched out into other areas. There is a great need for it. Yeah, and I imagine there's many law firms in Australia, but you can also approach law firms all over the world. You you do these things online as well, I presume. Yeah, that's right. There you go, an endless pool of people to talk to. (laughs) There's always phone calls from people afterwards. Uh, what, What I find with these talks is that the audience might be quite small, but the recording gets a lot of downloads people at the privacy of their right. own home want to hear about of it and that they hear what the red flags are start to get a bit nervous yeah hear what the benefits are of going alcohol free and then make yeah. some calls if we were yeah. in our 20s and drinking as much as we were if someone had come in someone like, like you that you could relate to and t- just told us the science and how much harm we're doing to our brains and our bodies. I think I would have stopped then because I was a smoker in my 20s. And in those days, smoking could be advertised in the UK. None of us really knew it was bad for us because it wasn't in the media. And then one day they they banned cigarette advertising and suddenly it was all over the, the media smoking gives you lung cancer and I still remember we were going what (laughs) and we'll stop smoking we needed to know so the information must be out there but at the moment because the media still take advertising revenue for alcohol the media isn't open and emphasizing this as much as it should be I would love to see a day when the advertising is banned and then the information will be in the public domain. But it's better than it used to be because the World Health Organization put out a report in 1988 which proved that alcohol was a carcinogen, a number one carcinogen. And that report was just buried and nobody knew the link. And But recently we do see that there's a link between alcohol and seven types of cancer, don't we? and 60 diseases but yeah yeah, we we have to maybe look for that information and we're hyper aware of it obviously but whether the man in the street knows or not the woman in the street rather yeah yeah don't necessarily want to hear it no that's it as well isn't it interesting so people call you after you've done this talk 
That's, they that's do. great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the way that I, that I go in is it's not necessarily just about being a problematic drinker. It's about no, no. how alcohol really ramps up your stress levels and how you can get caught in an alcohol stress burnout cycle. And it's just so relevant in a lot of these high pressure jobs like law firms because they attract perfectionists, people that do have control issues, that do have anxiety and depression. These are the things that studies have found are prevalent, particularly in in places like law firms. So alcohol is always in the mix. So if you present it in a way, alcohol is going to fuel your stress, fuel your burnout. Mm. These are the red flags. That's where people go, oh, oh, that's the penny drop. Yeah, Yeah, I love the way that you've, you've tied it in with stress. I was listening to your podcast on stress. Uh, There's such great information and it's more general information. It's about wellness. It's about stress. And that's the message you need to get over, isn't it? And then people that do have an issue with alcohol, they'll pick up on the relevant information. And it'll also benefit people that don't have an issue because everybody is stressed, especially in the law firms, I gather. (laughs) They just don't, I guess, really appreciate that their 3am wake up is because of their two or three glasses of wine that they've had. You do feel calmer, have greater resilience and can deal with stress in a much more flexible way. If you take alcohol out of the equation, that's the game changer. I think for many people just think, okay, I'll give it a go. See and see where we go from there. What would my life be like without alcohol? Just be sober curious at least. That's right. Yeah. I was thinking about those young people that you mentioned that don't drink. And imagine a, a young person that isn't really bothered about alcohol joins a law firm, an old-fashioned law firm where the drinking culture is hardcore. What would you advise them? How, the, how can they fit in? Because uh, I know where I've... You, you would be labelled as boring if you didn't go out with your colleagues for a drink and if you didn't keep up with them, there'd be another issue. So what would you advise someone finds themselves in a company like that and doesn't drink much. I guess the first point to really investigate is, are they really being excluded? Are they feeling unsafe? Is it such a robust drinking culture that you are noticeably being called out on it? And if that's the case, you've got to try to speak up, if you can, to the HR manager, if you can do it in a way that doesn't necessarily have ramifications for you personally, if you feel strong enough and safe enough to be able to do that, call it out because that's the one way that you can make change. I'd also say find your people in the workplace that may not drink. Try and find activities in the firm that might be non-drinking activities it's hard to put the burden on the employee to try and make the cultural shift themselves. But sometimes, and I've seen it happen, there actually has been an employee that I've worked with that did make the statement within their group team meeting, why are we always going to the pub? Why are we always bringing out all of this alcohol? And it changed the way that their whole group now socialises. The second thing that I would say is find your alcohol-free options and really just protect your own drinking goals as much as you can. So 
have your alcohol-free options and say no to alcohol and then keep on going back and doing this again and again and you're going to find that it just gets easier over time. Yeah. That people are less inclined to notice what you're doing and whether you're drinking and more inclined just to want to get as much down themselves. So, look, it's a real balance. But honestly, the most effective leaders out there, the ones that are doing well in the corporate sphere are often non-drinkers or extremely oh, rare drinkers. So you're going to be the one that's more productive, more energetic, yes. has greater mental clarity, longevity in the long run. So I'd say keep your eye on the prize. I talked to an investment banker once who stopped drinking and uh, I said, so why did you stop drinking? And he said, to give me an edge at work. Yes. It's good, isn't it? Because all, the, all yeah. the bankers would go out and get completely wasted now and again and he wouldn't. And the next day, if something big happened, he was the one <laughs> taking care of it. It's your superpower. It really is. Yeah. yeah. And I've got another story about workplace drinking, actually. We had a guy on one of our masterclasses and uh, he said, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this because I, I work in such a boozy culture. Anyway, as we got to know him more, it transpired that he was actually the boss, but it was a very small <laughs> kind of boutique bank or something. And, you know, maybe there were 25 people there. And he said, oh, it's the kind of culture where, you know, at four o'clock every day, the booze fridge is open and everyone grabs a drink and some of us stay on in the evening drinking. Uh, anyway, he decided that he had to stop because at, at the masterclass and giving all the information we talked about and he was pretty horrified. So he decided to stop drinking and he did well. And he also stacked his fridge with alcohol-free beers because he was a beer drinker. The first thing he discovered was that his drinks bill, the corporate drinks bill, plummeted. And the second thing was that everybody else drank less and that they would have open discussions about it eventually. And it turns out that they were only drinking a lot because he was the boss, he was the ringleader. Oh, no. and they, they, they felt that they had to fit in. And it's amazing, yes. isn't it? It takes one person. Yeah, just, yeah. Uh, yeah, to, to slow it down. Look, yeah. the other thing that you could do in that sort of corporate space, if it's really getting you down, is to consider getting uh, two, three sessions with a sobriety coach to talk through your anxieties and fears around workplace drinking and how yeah. you might be able to reframe it or just redefine what being a non-drinker in that corporate space looks to you. It might be a lot of internal work that you could do uh, to just to try and sail through some of the stress of it all. Yeah, so that yeah. takes me nicely yeah. on to my next question. Yes. I know that you've got a particular interest in managing stress and I was going to ask you for some tips for some of us because in Tribe Sober we now have a, a good proportion of our members are non-drinkers. So how uh, can they manage stress without resorting to alcohol? Because we find that people do really well for a few months, but then something bad happens. We had one the other day, a, a lady had a, a bereavement and she went straight to the drink because that was the only way she could remember how to deal with it. Yeah. So yep. give us some general tips. I love, love this question so much. And it forms a large part of all the work that I do because 
most of us drink to manage stress. So I think one of the first things is to really understand and be educated in your nervous system, your own personal nervous system and what triggers you and what doesn't. If you imagine your nervous system like a bit of rope and when you're really calm, you're at a zero, life's good. And then to appreciate where you are when you're notched up at a flight fight mode. And once you know your different states of nervousness, you get to understand what triggers you. Become aware of what are the things that are unique to you that pushes your nervous system up to an eight or nine or a 10. Because once you're aware of that, you can then observe it. And then you've got the ability to detach from just feeling overwhelmed and needing to drink to get rid of that feeling, to, to fly away from that high stress. Once you know when you're notching up, then you're able to pause and to really then distract, remove yourself from the situation, do your deep breathing exercises, jump in a cold shower, whatever the tools and strategies work for you to try and notch yourself down. I'd say the number one thing is that most people who drink a lot have done so uh, because they really don't understand when they hit flight and fight mode. And often our stress levels are very much governed by the stress response of our parents. So we've got the same stress response as they've had. It's a learned experience and you don't know that you've got it. You don't know why you're walking on eggshells most of the time. That education is just invaluable. When you're trying to get off alcohol and drink less, prepare a risk plan so that when you notice certain things that trigger you into high stress modes, you're noting it down, you're understanding what the patterns are. It might be particular conversations with a certain person or a fight with your kid or whatever it is, you start to notice the patterns. And once you're aware of it, you then can be a bit more forearmed when those moments pop up in your life. So that's an important one. Then the two other big ones would be understanding what your internal monologue is, your negative thoughts and addressing those, being aware of them, observing them. So reframing negative thoughts. It can really be a big trigger for stress and setting appropriate boundaries. So that might be around work life balance, around getting your exercise in, around eating healthily, setting the boundaries that keep your nervous system and your stress levels at a manageable level is just another big thing that I do working with clients. A lot of people that drink alcohol who are highly stressed, who are flinging themselves from work and then back into all the juggling at home, tend not to have good boundaries. They're just doing it all. They're people-pleasing. They're holding everything together and drinking is their quick fix way of trying to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, And that's the functioning alcoholic. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's that's yeah. great advice, Isabella. Thank you. Yeah, so there's a lot in there about being curious, isn't there, and observing rather than automatically responding and, and going for the booze. That's it, yeah, yeah. You also help parents and teenagers. Did I see that? I thought that yeah, was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Is that because you've got a teenager yourself? Yes, Exactly. It was largely born from having to come back from four weeks in rehab, four weeks away, 
and needing to integrate myself back into the family and thinking, what the heck am I going to tell my kids? Um, and how am I going to break the cycle so that they're not going to want to start drinking the way that I did at the age of 14? So part of that was I developed a course that is essentially free for any parents that just want to jump on to try and educate themselves and their kids around alcohol. And yeah, it's a bit of a passion project for me. Mm, I love this topic so much. Sounds amazing. How can people access that? I know some people with teenagers that they're worried about. (laughs) Yeah, and it's a hard topic because kids are kids and it's really hard to control them and they're wanting to be independent. Yeah, and they're certainly not going to listen to what their parents tell them, (laughs) especially if the parents are drinking. That's exactly right. And that's part of the course in a way is that if you are a drinker, how are you going to reconcile this with your conversations with your kids? So you've got to have a bit of a script there and some answers that make sense to them and are logical to be able to actually have a dialogue about it. And talking to them as young as you can really helps. It's on my website. There's a little link there to, yeah, Kids and Alcohol. Yeah. Fantastic. Just give me your website now so we don't forget at the end. Sure. What's your website? IsabellaFerguson.com.au So let's go back to you personally, Isabella. You've been alcohol-free for about three and a half years now, did I hear you say? Yeah, that's right. So can I have your top three benefits, please? Oh, personal benefits. It's hard to stop at three, isn't it? Uh, Look, I would say calm, being calm and content would be number one. Uh, I would say resilience. I think with just taking out that one thing from your life, you really create better boundaries. You understand yourself, self-respect, self-confidence. So all of those lovely ingredients that build resilience, resilience to all that life has to throw at you. You're just stronger without alcohol. Uh, And look, being a role model for my kids at this stage in my life, that's really important. I often feel really proud of just the fact that we're showing them that we can have wonderful celebrations, enjoy life, be really happy. And alcohol hasn't got any part to play in that whatsoever. Really proud about that because... I don't think there are many households out there that do that and it just means there's a lot of beliefs that the kids have formed around alcohol at quite a young age that they're then going to have to navigate when they get older. We don't realise how much our kids pick up things like alcohol is a coping mechanism when they see us. We're stressed so we pour a glass of wine and it happens on TV all the time, doesn't it? You see a a lady, a stressed lawyer in one of these things and she pours herself a glass and then you've got the guys the hit men and they're stressed so they pour themselves we're just learning this stuff subconsciously aren't we forming more limiting beliefs alcohol will help yeah you just become so much more aware of it don't you when you stop yes Uh, and that's why annie's book is such a, a game changer really because once we can see through all that marketing bullshit I think we're free. We could just laugh at yes. it and it loses its power. When I watch a movie now, I think, how long till the star of the show comes out? The booze. And it, it's less yes. than five minutes usually. And there once it you is. can see all that, it's just nothing. 
So how can people reach you? Is it back to your website again if they want personal coaching or sobriety coaching or the workplace training? Is that all on your yeah. your website? Yeah. It's all on my website and on Instagram I am alcohol and stress with Isabella. I believe right. is my and podcast and I'm on podcasts. You've got two. That's right. Yeah, I've got the podcast. So jump on and have a listen to some of the great interviews on Not Drinking Today. We cover all sorts of topics. And yeah, de-stress for success, just for all helpful hints to de-stress. Thank you so much, Isabella. Let's pull out some key points. Isabella began drinking at the age of 14. She associated it with fitting in, relaxation and risk-taking. Her drinking escalated during her career as a lawyer. She used alcohol for networking, coping with stress and socialising. We discussed the prevalence of alcohol consumption in a high-pressure environment such as law firms, where it's often used as a coping mechanism for stress. When Isabella got married and had children, her drinking ramped up further as she tried to balance work and motherhood resulting in burnout and strained relationships. She finally hit rock bottom when she became so severely intoxicated that she needed hospitalisation, leading to her decision to seek help and enter rehab. Even after rehab, she was still keen to try moderation, but eventually shifted her mindset through education. Through reading books like This Naked Mind by Annie Grace, which encouraged her to change her limiting beliefs around alcohol. Once she'd nailed her sobriety, Isabel transitioned her career to become a counsellor and coach, specialising in helping others to overcome alcohol dependency and manage their stress. These days, she conducts seminars in workplaces especially in law firms, to raise awareness about alcohol consumption and promote healthier habits. I'll put a link to our group discussion on that topic so that you can hear more about her wellness challenge. Isabella emphasised the changing attitudes towards alcohol in the workplace with more focus on wellness and productivity, especially amongst the younger generation. Her tips for managing stress without resorting to alcohol include understanding one's nervous system and triggers, setting boundaries, reframing negative thoughts and seeking support from sobriety coaches. We discuss the impact of personal choice on workplace culture, whether it's a heavy drinking boss encouraging his team to drink or a group of non-drinkers abstaining from alcohol, there will be an impact on workplace culture. Isabella's passion project is around parenting and alcohol education. She has the goal of preventing harmful drinking habits from forming at a young age. She emphasised the importance of parents being role models and challenging societal norms surrounding alcohol consumption. She has a course for parents on her website, which is isabellaferguson.com.au. Her personal benefits of sobriety include increased calmness and contentment, greater resilience and being a positive role model for her children by demonstrating that alcohol is not necessary for enjoyment and celebration.
To find out more about her, go to her website, which is isabellaferguson.com.au. She's also on Instagram and has two podcasts, De-Stress for Success and Not Drinking Today. Let me finish by reading out a couple of messages from our chat groups. These are from the Sober On Ramp group. That's the group where we put our newbies. It's for people with less than 30 alcohol-free days. Once they get to 30, we promote them to the 30-plus group. So here's one from Ruth from the UK. I enjoyed today's Zoom and felt reassured once again that the benefits of being alcohol-free far outweigh any ingrained beliefs about alcohol. Another one from Tanesh, also from the UK. It was a great meeting today and a great attendance. I learned a lot and that's what these meetings are for. Thanks to Megs for her beautiful insights which just concreted my journey and knowing that there's no going back anymore. It's not worth the effort of trying and trying again. And Sue, I'd also like to give thanks to you for your efforts and dedication to share with us. It really means a lot and I will one day pass this forward to the newbies coming along. Have a great day, my sober buddies, and here's to another day alcohol-free. Oh, thanks, guys. And Tanesh, we particularly appreciate your ambition to pay it forward once you've concreted your sobriety, as you put it. How lovely to see our Zoom chats taking off. Community manager Sue opens up her Zoom every day of the week, and people drop in for a chat from all over the world. How cool is that? If you'd like to be part of the Tribe Sober International family, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. That's it from me. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.